Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We are going to pivot a little bit to go more macro here. We've got our very own Michael McKee, international economics and policy correspondent. Uh, and our guest note for you, McKee, I'm learning so much. You were a White House correspondent? Oh, yeah. I, I didn't know I, about that. Years ago. To me, you're just you're just literally the Fed person and you came out of the <laughs> womb covering the Fed. I did, I, I I did politics for 20 years and... and I spent nine years at the White House and I got bored. And they said, okay, you can you do economics. You got bored at the White House? It's not as much fun as people think. Pre-2016, I mean, it, for it's, sure. It's, it's great to do the uh, big stories of yeah. the day, but you can't go anywhere. You can not mm. You can only talk to people on the phone. Yeah. And when you travel with the White House, you travel in a giant cavalcade, like a circus. <laughs> you, you, go, you fly to a city, you get on a bus, you go to a hotel meeting room, yeah. and then you get on the bus and go back again. They're, 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 you can do a lot more on other beats. Well, um, and as you've proven on the Fed beat. So talk to me about uh, what you're looking at when it comes to next week. It's, it's kind of foregone conclusion that we're going to see a hike. Um, what is your question going to be when it comes to speaking uh, in the Fed meeting afterwards? What are you looking to hear from Powell? Well, we're going to fly to Washington and get in a taxi and go to a meeting room yeah. and wait for Jay Powell. So very similar. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, the, the thing that everybody wants to know is what's next. There's a 95% chance priced into the market that they're going to raise rates, and that's basically 100% given the complexity of uh, of that calculation. And so do they go another time, given that the data suggests they don't have to at the moment, but there are reasons to think the data might turn around. And so that's going to be kind of a question uh, that overhangs everything in the, the Fed meeting. Do they go again? And if they then are going to go again, do they wait until November and do another skip in September? Do you anticipate them saying anything in that Fed meeting next week that will indicate what they're going to do next? Or is it going to be, we're open, the totality of the data? We're, yeah, I think the latter, because uh, they don't want to lock themselves into something. Because we're going to have a lot of data between now and, say, November, if they wanted to right. sort of program a, a skip in there. You'll have an, a number of employment reports and CPI reports and PCE reports. So the, the whole character of the debate could change very easily. Yeah, and we have a, a slew of economic data coming out next week as well. You know, if you were to pick kind of one data point that you're most focused on, um, given following the Fed, 
what would it be? Well, Friday's PCE report will tell us a couple things. One is in their favorite inflation indicator. It's expected to drop the way CPI did, maybe not as much, but to show progress on inflation, but also spending. Are consumers holding up? Are they still spending, but at a lower rate, which is kind of what the Fed wants to see. They want to see demand come down a little bit. So those are going to be perhaps the most interesting things of the week that tell us something about what's happening going forward. Uh, The GDP report will also give us some idea of how the economy is holding up. And it's according to all the now casting ahead of time, it's holding up much better than people thought. And uh, that may change some minds about uh, in, in terms of economists forecasts for what's going to happen and if it comes in strong especially consumer spending you could see uh, an equity rally on that basis (laughs) although you always have to discount the fact that then the markets think oh they're going to raise rates more but uh, it would show that people are still spending money yeah and that personal consumption piece of the GDP last time coming in quite you know, quite strong, holding up the overall number, and then uh, yeah. revisions coming in higher as well. I mean, um, it, when you think about uh, consumer spending, I mean, the, the kind of notes we've been getting from earnings calls are like, hey, we're seeing a wall, we're hitting a wall, and yet the data seems to come in, you know, continually more positive. Uh, than anticipated. Yeah, it, it, it all depends on uh, the categories, the sectors that people are spending money in um, and, and how you define a wall. If you had been seeing sales grow at a 4 or 5% rate and then they drop down to 2 because the Fed's rate interest rates are higher or because the economy slows a little bit, um, that's uh, okay. If, it, mm-hmm. if, if a wall means zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, what we've got is a lot of retailers uh, reporting and, and retail sales numbers that have come out that are, are weak uh, or weaker, but we don't know what spending in services has been like. And, uh, you know, you don't get earnings reports from the corner dry cleaner. So that's that's what we're going to be looking for. How much is the Fed looking at those earnings results? They they look at them, but the market isn't their primary concern. As long as the market, as long as trades can happen, Mm -hmm. then their view is stocks go up, stocks go down. So uh, obviously earnings impact uh, asset values and asset values are all part of inflation as well. So it's something they keep an eye on, but it's not something that drives their decision making. Yeah. yeah, we were just talking with Alexandra about, you know, one of our top headlines today, US recession becomes a closer call as economists rethink forecasts. Has the Fed rethought its take on whether we do need to see um, thoroughly indicators move negative, uh, some, at least a shallow recession. Are, are you getting any signals? That no, uh, actually, they've been pretty consistent. Uh, Fed officials have all said they don't think we need to have a recession. And of course, Chris Waller way out in front saying a year ago that we could get by without a recession and without seeing unemployment rise significantly. The Fed staff has consistently at the last three meetings forecast a recession at the end of the year. Uh, It will be interesting to see when we get the minutes of the meeting next week, uh, three three more weeks for that, um, whether the Fed staff is still in the recession mode. Yeah. Okay. Final question for you, McKee. Uh, we've got about 30 seconds Final here. Jeopardy here. Final Jeopardy here. Uh, how many data points do you think the Fed needs to see that look like last week with CPI and non-farm payrolls to justify an end? Uh, probably one or two more, depending on how uh, much 
the numbers move. Yeah. Um, if if you got a big drop, then maybe they can start to feel good after one. But I think they want to see two uh, at least to give them the idea that this is not going to turn around immediately. Yeah, yeah. A lot to monitor for them because it's very confusing how much is going on out there with employment looking great, GDP staying strong, and then you've got on the other side of things, consumer spending starting to buckle a little bit when it comes to the earnings picture. Michael McKee, thank you so much. You As always. You know, I love to spend You, you got to go out and spend so that we can save the economy. Oh, I'm spending. Don't and worry about summer. me, McKee. Yeah. It's summer, exactly. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you so much. Michael McKee with us there. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We are going to cover uh, some mildly breaking news from this morning. Uh, we got the trial date for Donald Trump's classified documents trial, that date being May 20th of 2024. Uh, so we have a fantastic guest in studio with us. Uh, if Paul were here, he'd say you get extra credit, Wendy. Uh, this is Wendy Schiller. She is a professor at Brown University uh, and can talk all things politics with us. So, Wendy, thanks for coming in. Uh, this May 20th date, it feels to me like this is Bad news for the Justice Department, who wanted December, and bad news for the Trump camp, who wanted it to be after the November election. So how are you digesting that date? And is it good news for anyone? Well, I'm not sure the judge split the difference, but if both parties are unhappy, that probably is a good thing in terms yeah. of how the decision was made. Um, the uh, primary season will be essentially settled by then. You know, the primary calendar is out now with some states unsettled, uh, New Hampshire for the Democrats, for example. But nonetheless, you know, w we'll know whether Trump is likely to be the nominee by May of 2024. Um, it will uh, shape the campaign itself because if the nominee is decided, we think it's probably going to be Biden, and we think 
may be Trump, then the American public's attention is on this trial. And so it will galvanize Trump supporters, mm. but it might also continue to give independent voters who are absolutely crucial in 2024 more pause about voting for the Republican nominee mm. for president. Uh, and so that's how do the Republicans get around that? They're going to want to mobilize their base for congressional elections and the presidential election. But how do you actually get those voters who have rejected Trump for three elections in a row now to come back in the middle of a trial? Yeah, how do the uh, Republican challengers, the Ron DeSantis, the Nikki Haley's of the world, how do they play this considering that, you know, the primary season is going to be largely over? Well, I think they have to worry about August 23rd, Simone Moore, you know, the first debate. You know, if Trump shows up, then they get to attack him directly. And we've seen them to be reluctant to do that. They're dancing around it. But Trump showed in 2016 that if you take your opponents head on and you show no mercy, you will do better with the Republican primary voting base. So they're, they have to worry about how to get attention from now until uh, December. And, and then if Trump is not on that debate stage, who's going to watch it? So I think their problem is momentum. And the other thing is, of course, the January 6th trial shoe. Like, when does that drop? And how do we manage, uh, in terms of our justice system, these two very important federal trials? Yeah, certainly a race for all these trials moving forward. Which one gets the most attention first? But I mean... You know, you say that, you know, Trump showed the um, success of going out there being very forthright, but criticizing Trump has been a negative uh, for lots of politicians over the past uh, several years. Is there any signs that that's starting to change? Well, the uh, very famous now, long gone, Clark Clifford, political advisor, started out with Harry Truman, said you can't beat somebody with nobody. You have to actually present the alternative. Say, this guy can't win. I can win. Don't you want to be a winner? Trump has sold himself on being a winner. And the problem is now he has tagged Ron DeSantis, I think his closest best funded challenger, as a loser, even yeah. though I got reelected by massive numbers in Florida and supposedly po- you know, still popular there. So Trump is just winning. Winning the PR war, exactly, Simone, as you say, and if you're not Chris Christie, who just doesn't care and is going after him, you you lose that war before you get on the stage. You have to show mm-hmm. Republican voters you're willing to fight. One of the things that keeps these voters loyal to Trump is that he has always been willing to fight, theoretically for them, but also for himself. And that's a trait that seems to have really resonated and is sticking with them. So if you can't show that you're willing to do that on a debate stage with not that much to lose, I'm not sure how you ever pull like the 9% of that Trump base they're going to need to win the primary. Well, and you mentioned DeSantis as well. Why is he struggling so much at the start of his campaign, you think? Uh, Madison, that is, you know, political observer question. If we were talking six months ago, a year ago, we said this guy is clearly at $110 million. Yeah. He, uh, he's a lovely family, really, you know, no scandals that we can think of, you know, young. You, he would be the ready-made candidate. Um, and he's just stumbled and stumbled. And the problem is that he doesn't seem to be connecting with voters on the campaign trail. Yeah. And, voted, and, and primaries are retail politics. Yeah. So if you don't connect over in a large arena, you don't connect on television or media, and then you don't don't connect in person. Uh, right. There's no reason to switch your allegiance. And I think that's his big problem. And how you get over that, that's, you know, you need a lot of uh, PR training. I'm not quite sure. Yeah. It's whether the Republicans want to win. And there mm. are enough Republicans, by the way, in the Republican primary base that if they all chose to go with somebody else, Donald Trump would not be the nominee. Well, I guess the idea with DeSantis and the appeal for uh, the conservative voting base has been that he's essentially Trump, but he knows how to play the system. And when you look at, you know, some of the plans that Trump has come out with recently to target migrants, bureaucrats, uh, as well as ramp up his... uh, 
China, um, his pushback towards some of the policies in China. I mean, a lot of the things, specifically in the domestic side that he's suggesting, not necessarily going to get past the courts or Congress, et cetera. Um, does anyone care on the Republican mm. side? Or? Yeah, I mean, you know, first of all, one thing we have to think about is Trump is the incumbent, right? I mean, he's not in office. He is not. He's former President Trump. But to the Republicans who voted for him and are loyal to him, he's still the incumbent candidate, incumbent president. So if you're not voting for him, you're sort of disloyal, right? It's like voting against Jimmy Carter or George Herbert Walker Bush when they were challenged in the primaries. So that's a psychological hit, right? How do you get over that challenge? And the second thing is Trump focuses on things that matter economically to a wide berth of people, tariffs, China. Uh, the loss of jobs over the last 25 years because of our free trade policies, for example. He continues to do that, whereas DeSantis chose really social, not narrow, but social issues in Florida. So how many people care about sort of what you're reading in a textbook in Florida? How many people care about what you can do in Florida? Whereas Trump has the opportunity to say, I was tough on China internationally, and Mm -hmm. I'm going after all the things that matter to you in Iowa and to Michigan and to Pennsylvania and Nevada. So this is the advantage Trump has and it's a big one over DeSantis right now. So that's, that's I think, the, the, sort of the, the big um, gulf between the two of them. Um, no matter what DeSantis says about what he does internationally, Trump can say, I did that. Right, right. And it's interesting because I was covering the DeSantis campaign for the midterms down in Miami and went to one of his uh, events, and he doesn't want to shake hands. Like, it's the most simple things that you have to do on the campaign trail as a candidate uh, that he's not necessarily willing to engage in. And that feels like the thing that Trump is so good at. Um, when it comes to engaging with voters. And, and Trump is also, I mean, Madison, that's a, a really uh, great point. And the other thing that Trump has been good at, as many people as he alienates, he also appeals, particularly in Florida, and you can say more about this because you were there, is that there's a bunch of people who are now uh, foreign-born but naturalized citizens yep. from a lot of countries in Latin America who are used to strong leaders who like that type of leadership and may not be as liberal on social policies that the Democrats are used to thinking about, particularly for Latinx voters. So Trump did better in Florida amongst the whole people in Miami-Dade, for example, um, uh, and uh, Biden did worse. And that's a scary proposition for the Democrats nationwide, particularly if you think about Nevada and you think about some other states that they need to, Arizona, that they need to really hold. Uh, And there's where Trump also understands that people are not monolithic based on whatever their background is. And DeSantis has nothing to offer these voters to say, I'll be better, uh, Mm -hmm. or even in my persona, that I'm going to remind you of the way it was when there was order and stability. Sometimes I have Mm -hmm. trouble with this idea because if they left their home countries, there must have been something wrong with that. So um, so we have to think about that. But this is a looming issue for the Democrats that I think they're not quite on top of right now. Yeah, let's turn this to the Democratic side, though, because we had the news that an FBI document um, with purportedly, according to the GOP, evidence of bribes paid by Ukrainian businessmen to President Joe Biden and his son Hunter. Well, apparently it's not as clear as Republican um, lawmakers have portrayed it. Is this the end of this uh, frenzy of, of headlines and uh, news about um, this purported issue, these potential bribes? You know, difficult relatives have been around in American politics for a long time for presidents. I mean, I'm old enough to remember Billy Carter and it's way before your time, but he caused 
caused Jimmy Carter a lot of problems. Hunter Biden, in the end of the day, may be uh, prosecuted or indicted or alleged to have committed other crimes. And he, he may, you know, have to, you know, do another plea deal. We have no idea. But there's no evidence uh, that we can see right now that ties any of this to Joe Biden. Um, and so I think that's a big hill to climb for the Republican Party. People may not love Joe Biden, but yeah. I don't think there's a grown inclination to think that he's super corrupt among independent voters and the Democrats. And so the independent voters are just key in all these swing states. And if you can't get them over to believe that, they can believe the sun went astray. But to have them believe this is going to take a lot. And if you focus everything on that, um, I think then the Democrats just bring up January 6th over and mm. over and over again. And that's a direct allegation against President, former President Trump. Right. It- We're going to have to bring you back on to talk more about Biden and Bidenomics as well, because I was hoping to get your take on how that's playing uh, with voters. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. This is Wendy Schiller. You're hearing a professor at Brown University, political expert here. Uh, Really great to get your take. So we appreciate it. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship. New York Station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's turn back a little bit to the earnings picture um, because we did have Blackstone earnings coming out yesterday. We had BlackRock earnings about a week before, and we want to get the latest on this with Kathy Seifert. She's the director of research at CFRA. She has a buy rating on both of these names. Kathy, let's start with Blackstone. Um, you know, the picture kind of mixed here. What was your takeaway? The picture was mixed, but I think we're starting to see signs, encouraging signs. I mean, granted, coming out of the pandemic, most of these companies in the asset management space are going to have some tough comps um, after, you know, after a strong post-pandemic recovery. But in the case of Blackstone, I mean, the shares are up over 40 percent this year because they weakened late in 2022 on news that the company was starting to um, put a ban on redemptions in their real estate space. So, I mean, there's a lot of moving parts here, but I think bottom line, I think the stock is poised to outperform, largely because there's still a positive secular growth story here in the demand for um, private credit, um, private equity assets, you know, assets that are not correlated to the broader market. Um, I think the thing that we need to see, and it'll help a lot of other companies in this sector, is um, the capital markets activity to improve so that private equity firms can increase realizations, which would help their top line. Um, And that'll also help the I-banks as well. Do you think private credit is still the big winner for these asset managers? There is still, I also follow the insurance companies, so I sort of see the demand curve for this, and there is still a fair amount of demand for private credit. I think one of the trends to be looking for is kind of the democratization of these products as private equity firms seek to build out um, a suite of products aimed at not just the ultra high net worth, but high net worth individuals. So I think that to a degree will also help fuel um, some of the demand. Um, Insurance companies are still um, increasing their allocation to private credit. So yeah, I do think that the demand curve there is still fairly attractive. 
Yeah, one of the things overall, I mean, maybe this demand for private credit continues, but Blackstone generally finding it hard to raise new funds. They raised $17 billion in the second quarter. That was down 77% uh, on a year-on-year basis. Maybe that wasn't unexpected, but like, why are they finding it so challenging to raise these funds right now? Well, I mean, this is also coming off, as I said, a really strong fundraising year after the pandemic. So there are tough comparables there. And I think, you know, I think the environment, given the velocity of interest rate changes, um, you know, brought on by the Fed, I think it was difficult for a number of firms to make commitments. So my sense is that things will pick up once the interest rate environment Um, you know, settles down a little. I think it's also important to remember that if you look across the asset management space, private equity firms and the likes of BlackRock continue to grow organically, i.e. they continue to bring in new business. There are a lot of asset management firms that don't and they're bleeding assets. So I think it's also important that yes, while it's down from a really strong um, you know, couple of years previously, it still represents organic growth, which is which is significant because once you get some market performance, you get dual catalysts of organic growth and the tailwind of asset appreciation. Well, one of the headwinds is the slowdown in deal making, as you know, uh, Microsoft Activision notwithstanding there. Uh, How big of a headwind is the challenging deal-making market that we're currently in right now for these firms? Well, I mean, not to make a plumbing analogy, but it's kind of like the pipeline is sort of backed up a little bit. And, you know, if you look at sort of the um, the fund inflows and outflows in private equity at some point, you need to start realizing some profits on these assets, particularly as um, you know some of these funds have um, set you know targeted expiration dates. Um, it's difficult if you're not realizing gains on those assets. I mean, what we're seeing in, in a lot of the private equity firms is they are deploying capital. Um, and I think at some point, and John Gray talked about this on the Blackstone call, that he's that you know as the year progresses. Um, the capital markets activity should pick up and that should help the pipeline, which ultimately helps the top line at private equity firms like Blackstone. Kathy, talk to me a little bit about BlackRock. It seems like flows into their long-term products widely missed analyst expectations. I mean, is this the same flavor uh, of issue uh, that we were seeing at Blackstone? Um, to a degree, yes. I mean, I still, um, the fact that they continue to have organic growth that's sort of at the top of the heap for traditional asset managers, that's key. The fact that they have um, Aladdin, their technology business, that's key. Although, quite frankly, um, Silicon Valley Bank was reported to be an Aladdin client, so that was a little bit of a black eye. We, we didn't hear anything about that on the call. Um, but again, it's a it's a function of some tough comparables coming out of the pandemic. I also see BlackRock at a little bit of an inflection point. Um, you know, they dominate in ETFs. They have a strong fixed income franchise. Where they don't have a big presence is in alternatives, private credit, things like that. And so, 
I see them gradually building out that business, um, likely through acquisitions, although I don't see them making blockbuster deals. I see sort of a bunch of sort of smaller incremental deals. Mm. I do still like the franchise, though. Yeah, I mean, one of the questions has been what happens when Larry Fink kind of steps back. Uh, We only have about a minute here. Give me your thoughts. How close are we to even getting a name of a successor? Um, you know, this is the game that we play with Berkshire Hathaway. I follow Berkshire Hathaway, and this is the game everyone likes to play. Bottom line, I think the bench at BlackRock is deep enough that investors do not need to worry about the future of BlackRock after Larry Fink. Very interesting. He's such a personality, you know. Uh, he, he's, I mean, he. That said, BlackRock's a big organization, and and folks, you know, we look at Blackstone, has been able to move on, have been able to uh, establish a new top dog, uh, even after founder Steve Schwartzman steps away. Right, right. Yeah, it's really interesting to continue to monitor kind of these uh, big name guys on Wall Street that continue to just have such a huge impact on the overall market and sentiment. Uh, Traders really hanging on to every word that they say, especially given uh, just the volatility and confusing nature of the market that we are um, currently in, Simone. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visual your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. The outlook and bullish calls. We've got a great guest on here. We've got Gina Bolvin, the president of Bolvin Wealth Management, uh, coming on. And Gina uh, had a bullish call in January about a 15% rise in the S&P 500, one of the only strategists that we were having on at the time with a bullish call. So really excited to chat with her. Uh, Gina, thank you so much for joining us on this Friday. Uh, as we were just talking about with Alex, typically uh, a good first half of the year can lead to a good second half of the year as well. Well, given the bullish call that you had back in January, are you still bullish for the second half of the year? 
So I am. First of all, thanks for having me back on. And um, you're right. In January, I came on and I said the market was going to be up 15 percent by the end of the year. Um, although I thought it would take all year to get there, we had thought the second half was going to uh, drive most of the gains. And it was really the first half, which goes to why I tell clients that you cannot time the market. Um, we are bullish. However, um, and we do think that this is a strong, confirmed bull market. Uh, however, we think that this young bull market is due for a pause. You know, we've come so far, so fast. And um, even healthy bull markets have corrections. An average correction might be 12 or 13%. But we still think 12 months, 18 months out from now, we think the market will be higher than where we are now. Yeah, I mean, t describe to me how that pause happens. What does it look like? Which names um, are going to be in focus? Is it the tech names that have had this incredible rally uh, and been leading uh, this stock market higher? Yeah. We, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we're expecting uh, technology to take a pause. And what's going on today at the at four o'clock today, um, the NASDAQ 100 is going to rebalance. And we're going to see those top five names, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, Alphabet and NVIDIA. Um, those weightings are going to be taking from 43 percent to the NASDAQ 100 down to 38%. So that's gonna cause some volatility. And there's a very high bar to clear because uh, those stocks and the whole uh, tech tech sector has done so well. So yeah, the, but this, Fed isn't out of the, the this, Fed isn't out of the way either. That, that's right, but this options expiration, like how much of an impact does that have? Is Because it, it seems sort of idiosyncratic uh, on some degree, um, does that, permanently change the mood in any of these big names? Not not really. You know, um, you know, we're really looking at, you know, where are we going to be more longer term, even 12 months um, from now. And once a bull market is confirmed, um, the average return is 19 percent. 12 months out. So we and the average bull market is five years. So we think that this market um, has legs and it's going to continue. But short term, short term, there could be a pullback. And, you know, next week is a big week with the Fed as well. He's expected to raise rates by a quarter of a point. It'll be interesting to see um, his comments and how hawkish he is. Well, as he usually does, I feel like he leaves himself open to uh, the totality of the data and, and gives himself a little bit of flexibility there. Having said that, though, I'm really interested in your uh, recession call as it relates to market uh, sentiment, because the Dow posting a nine day winning streak 25 times since 1950. Only three of those streaks happened within a recession year. Where do you see evidence of a recession, given the technicals of the market and what we're seeing in the economy? We actually think that the odds of a soft landing have increased and um, the consumer has really, you know, the consumer is 70% of the economy and the consumer is still spending. I think earlier in the year, a lot of people predicted that the consumer would, you know, rein it in a little bit more because inflation was so high. 
Um, many strategists talk about FOMO, fear of missing out in the market, and I'm really focused on YOLO. The <laughs> consumer has been underestimated because uh, COVID, COVID has given them that YOLO, you only live once mentality, and they're continuing to spend. Um, a, a recession could be likely, but that doesn't necessarily mean the stock market's going to go down. Once a recession is called, or we know we're in a recession, the market usually rallies because the market's forward-looking. If we do have a recession, we do think it'll be mild, but it's really going to be based on um, you know, the labor market as well, and that's something to keep mm -hmm. an eye on. Yeah, and we get data around that as well next week. Um, okay, so if this bull market is due for a pause, where do you hide out uh, in equities right now? Well, I don't know that you hide out. You know, um, we, we're a little neutral on technology. We were overweighted. We went from overweight to neutral on tech. And we do like industrials right now. There's um, a great offshoring trend. Um, that looks very attractive. We also like medical devices. And, you know, you might want to start looking at small caps and mid cap stocks. I think it's a little early, but they haven't done um, they haven't done that much. And um, that's where we're at right now. When you think about small caps and mid caps, what are you looking at to determine which kind of secondary plays are going to be the most uh, successful and effective? Well, small cap stocks are very um, e economically sensitive. And as we head out of a recession, they generally tend to lead. So that's something that you would want to keep an eye on. And, and in, in the moment that we're in right now, too, I'm curious, do you think that we're about to enter kind of an era of dividend plays? Is that going to be the move moving forward? Well, that goes more to value stocks. And um, I do think that growth stocks will continue to do well and i would uh, i would tell investors to have a barbell approach to have some growth stocks and some value stocks some dividend plays but also keep in mind that you know as rates are so high um interest rates that this is going to be good for fixed income investors and now you're going to be able to get a higher yield off money market accounts and um, bonds could do well. So you could also get higher yields through fixed income with less of a risk than investing in stocks. Let's turn back for, to the consumer for a moment because I've had my eye on a bunch of consumer-oriented earnings. Uh, and we've been talking about how that is such an important piece of the economy. Take me through a, we have this potential for um, just some weakness that we've seen trading down, maybe not buying as much from some of uh, the you know consumer packaged goods side. At the same time, we've got travel uh, where Delta and the like are still seeing this enormous demand, especially for international travel. Where is the consumer now? Um, is this a bifurcated sort of high, high income, low income uh, situation? absolutely and um but you you know and that heads um set that segues right into inflation right um the lower end consumer is hit more with inflation they feel it more but we expect and one of the reasons why we we continue to be bullish is we expect inflation to be at a three handle by the end of the year. And that is really going to help the lower end consumer. Yeah. And that's going to 
um, help them spend more. You know, we are starting to see inflation come down. The reason we think it's going to be down by the end of the year is we had a blowout housing number where multifamily houses, um, building permits for multifamily housings is booming. We haven't seen this type of activity in decades. When yeah. this supply comes to the market at the end of the year, that's going to put a downward pressure on rents. Yep. And that's the majority of CPI. And that's why um, consumers are going to continue to spend. We're going to see rents coming down, inflation coming down, and they're going to have more money in their wallets. It's also because the job market has been so resilient right. and so strong. And when consumers have jobs, they will continue to spend. Yeah, we continue to see that strength in uh, both the labor market and uh, with rate wages as well. Gina, thank you so much for joining us. That was Gina Bolvin with Bolvin uh, Wealth Management. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's first, let's change gears and get to Evangelos Momios. He's an equity analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence because we have some big news from the credit card companies today. Amex, American Express, revenue missing estimates, card spending growth slowing. Uh, Evangelos, what exactly is happening here? Is this all just weakness around the consumer or is this something more fundamental to American Express's business? Um. Yes, like you noted, they missed on revenue, but revenue expectations uh, were somewhat inflated. Revenue still grew uh, quarter over quarter. Uh, so the U.S. consumer con- continues to spend um, and continues to use uh, his or her credit card. Um, delinquencies um, across the board, not only for American Express, but also for uh, those that cater to uh, lower credit profile customers like Capital One, Discover, and so forth. Uh, delinquency rates have been going up. They have been normalizing um, from um, very good levels uh, post-pandemic. But the big stories are that the growth is still robust, albeit a little uh, lower than last year. Uh, delinquencies are um, going up, but in a, uh, you know, controlled sort of fashion. Uh, net charge-offs, those are credit losses, uh, are also following the same path uh, as delinquencies with a delay. So overall, um, probably more about inflated expectations and less about any uh, huge negative surprise from the credit card lenders this quarter. Well, talk to me about those delinquencies specifically. Where are we seeing the most pain for consumers there? Yeah, so um, the interesting point is that delinquency rates in the second quarter, uh, as I said, um, uh, went up. Um, They went up less than they did in the first quarter, for what that's worth. Um, We don't have exact breakdown by um, FIFO, stratification. But what they do tell us is that, uh, what the companies tell us is that people on the lower end of the FICO tier um, are being uh, more delinquent in their payments than those uh, at the higher level uh, of the FICO tier. And that's also evident when one compares the numbers between those that focus 
uh, again, on higher uh, risk profile customers like Synchrony Financial versus those that focus on prime, super prime customers like American Express. How long do the executives of American Express and others, how long do they see some of this weakness, especially amongst the lower end consumers? How long do they see that lasting? Um, it's it's very difficult to predict, but what we can uh, say if we look at uh, longer periods is that generally for delinquencies to continue to increase, you will have to have some um, deterioration uh, in the employment situation and unemployment rate uh, remains very low. So uh, most of those executives uh, on their conference calls, they will tell you that we cannot predict the market, but we, the economy, but we have to be ready. So um, they are beefing up reserves ahead of that potential development. But so far, um, the, the consumer is holding up better uh, than expected. Although, as I said, it's uh, a situation that is normalizing from uh, prior years. Well, even though the consumer is holding up better than expected, we're still, I mean, it's just, it's such a weird vibe right now out there because there's so much good news and bad news all the time. And one of the pieces of bad news is obviously in the commercial real estate space. Uh, to what extent do you see in your research that investors are uh, kind of scrutinizing uh, Capital One, uh, other banks um, and credit companies uh, due to consumer uh, commercial real estate exposure? Yeah, like, like you insinuated in your question, this is more of a bank uh, issue and less of a credit card uh, uh, issue. Of the uh, company's focus in um, credit card lending, Capital One is one that has uh, some uh, commercial real estate exposure, but it is uh, insignificant compared to that um, of other banks. Um, to the extent that the commercial real estate uh, pressure uh, reflects some deterioration in economic conditions that could affect uh, the employment situation, then it will be an issue for credit cards, but nobody's making that connection yet. Mm. I mean, differentiate between some of these credit card companies for me. Uh, I believe uh, you write that American Express is better positioned for growth from here on. Is that because of the, I guess, income level of their consumers or is there some, some other rationale? Yeah, so there are two characteristics. The characteristics, the one that you just mentioned, they focus more on super prime uh, consumers. But the other characteristic is that unlike uh, the other credit card lenders, their uh, revenue cost, comes mostly from purchase activity and less from interest earned on outstanding balances. So in, in that respect, they are not that uh, directly impacted by interest rate level, but they're more impacted by how often we use our credit cards and for how large uh, transactions. So. When you see people travel more, when you see uh, airfare going up, hotel prices going up, all that is good for American Express, not as good or equally good for someone like uh, Capital One or Discover. So just to continue this uh, competition between the names that we're talking about here, is Amex the best positioned of those names to benefit from increased consumer spending? What's the kind of hierarchy? 
Yeah, in, in my opinion, although we don't make recommendations on, on the stocks themselves sure. at the BI, uh, what we can say is that the fact that American Express is more focused on prime super prime consumers, it's more um, sensitive to spending than outstanding balances. They have an international presence. All those characteristics um, will make it hold up better if there is a recession, a consumer recession, which is the fear right now. So as a result, I think they're best positioned compared to others. Although I would reiterate, um, it's not like others are uh, falling off the cliff. It's just that things are not as uh, great as they were for them uh, a year or two ago. And like you said, it's a very strange environment. We've talked a lot about the health of the consumer here, but are there other things, you know, compliance, regulation, that uh, stand to put these credit card companies to the test? Yeah, there is an outstanding issue with um, a limit on late payment fees uh, that is under consideration by uh, regulators and, and the industry. If it comes into effect, it's going to be um, sometime next year. Uh, we don't know the final form, but it's an issue that would impact um, uh, disproportionately uh, those companies that um, sponsor co-branded cards, meaning the kind of card you will see from your retailer without knowing exactly who issued it. So those are um, in order of uh, importance. Um, Synchrony Financial, uh, Bread, um, and to a lesser extent, Capital One. Uh, so it's something that uh, we keep an eye on, but it's not finalized yet. I always wonder exactly who is you know, behind my credit card whenever I get one right. of those retailer uh, cards, because it's always such a question mark for me. Matt. Yeah, yeah, and it's always, it's. I feel like it's a question mark for a lot of consumers, and this is why this space is so interesting to watch as an indicator of consumer health, as you know, uh, better than anyone, Simone. Uh, so really interesting here. I think we gotta leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us. And Simone, I can't wait to continue to um, hear your take on kind of the consumer health health when it comes to some of these names and other ones. And it's so interesting when you're looking at kind of consumer credit, um, because uh, we are seeing some of these signals about, you know, auto loan credit deteriorating, consumer loan credit deteriorating, uh, and all of this, of course, with interest remains remaining high. So we're going to have to see exactly how that factors in uh, to the health of the consumer, particularly as we enter a big week for consumer earnings. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Netflix and Tesla earnings a bit disappointing. Uh, we saw the Nasdaq dropping by the most in five months after those earnings. Uh, and this gives us a really good excuse to kind of dig into the EV space after those Tesla earnings. And we've got a great guest uh, joining us to give us uh, a look at not just uh, the EV space, but specifically uh, EV charging, which is a really interesting uh, space to be looking at. We've got Josh Aviv on the line. He is the founder and CEO of Spark Charge. Uh, Josh, great to speak with you. Thanks for joining us here on this Friday. Uh, before we get into kind of the overall charging space when it comes to EVs, talk to me just about Spark Charge specifically. What do you do? What do you provide? Absolutely. So at Spark Charge, 
Uh, we charge electric vehicles in a mobile fashion. So that means we actually deliver and bring the range to the electric vehicle. The same way that you would order a pizza on your phone to get delivered to your front door, um, we bring the charging station to your electric vehicle, whether you be at home, at work, out on the go. We make charging simple, convenient, and easy. This is one part of your business is is to consumers, to people who get stuck, and then also to rental companies, I understand. Um, give me a breakdown. Where does most of the revenue come from? I would assume rentals, right? Absolutely. So earlier this year, we launched our fleet charging business where we actually now go out and service fleet customers. So you're talking about companies that have, you know, anywhere from as low as five all the way up to close to a thousand vehicles in their fleet, electric vehicles in their fleet. We go out and we service them. We offer a turnkey service where basically we can show up and start charging every vehicle every single day. They no longer have to worry about trenching, digging, tunneling, cabling, submitting RFPs, where they install the charging stations. We show up with our mobile charging stations. We plug into every single vehicle. We charge every single vehicle and we make it so that they can grow and scale their fleets almost infinitely. So as you know, uh, one of the potential big boons for a name like Tesla is uh, offering its own charging network to uh, other companies like a, like Ford EVs, uh, for example. I wonder, does the kind of democratization of Tesla's charging networks, uh, is that good news for you guys or bad news? It's, it really is good news. I mean, when you think about it, you know, the market from its inception was, you know, oh, we're, we're going to go with chatamo for you know dc fast charging then it moved to ccs as the dominant charging provider dominant charging uh plug now it's you know north american charging standard is slowly starting to look like it's going to become the dominant um plug that you know ev oems will use to charge their vehicles i think that's really good i think we need one standard i think you know trying to juggle three balls in the air and figure out well does this car take chatmo this one takes ccs this one take nacs i think that's very difficult for not only oems but charging station manufacturers like ourselves to kind of justify and keep up with i think if the industry moves with nacs it's great for everyone it's a great standard it's very much developed and tested so i think it'll be great for for the entire industry yeah and it seems like some of the uh, car makers are getting on board with that, certainly. I mean, the question I have about mobile charging, what's the outlook? Because we do expect to see um, an infrastructure around these mobile charging stations, grounded mobile charging stations, grow substantially over the next couple of years. Can mobile charging really play into that when um, that's, you know, there's ultimately, hopefully, going to be more infrastructure? Absolutely. So when you think about it, mobile charging will always be able to scale faster than infrastructure. Right now, if we decided, you know, Spark Charge and Bloomberg said, hey, we want to put a charging station in the ground, a DC fast charging station in the ground, it's going to take anywhere from 18 months on the low end to as high as what we're hearing is four to five years on the high end. And that means that if you really want to have infrastructure at scale, the only real way to do that is through mobile. So mobile will always be able to scale faster, charge more cars, charge more cars in geographical areas that a lot of fixed infrastructure just can't reach. Um, and so as the EV industry continues to grow, it will inevitably have to rely on mobile charging to do so. Uh, the fixed infrastructure will never be able to keep up with the amount of cars that are being sold on a daily basis. And so at Spark Charge, we look at that and we say, okay, 
well, we're definitely going to install charging stations, but there's going to be applications where installing one or two or five charging stations cannot meet the demand of that area. And mobile charging is the only option that can come in there, take over, charge those cars on a daily basis, offer a seamless experience that those just fixed charging stations cannot. And we're seeing that right now. We're on track over the past six months or basically year to date We've onboarded more fleets, more EV companies than a lot of fixed charging stations have over their five, 10 year um, lifespan in the business. So the industry is definitely moving towards mobile and definitely loving the fact that mobile is seamless and easy, uh, easy to yeah. use. All right. So let's say I rent an EV. I'm on vacation. I'm taking a road trip for some reason and I end up in a little bit of a middle of nowhere situation. I'm not near a charger. Do I call a spark charge person to get uh, access to uh, your your on the road mobile charging? Is that um, something that's in the cards for you guys? Some like an on demand service to that degree? Absolutely. In fact, it's already in the works. Um, if you rent a car through Hertz, um, if you run out or if you feel as though you're even getting low, um, they will actually be able to dispatch one of our mobile charging units to you um, so that we can charge your car if you're sitting outside of the hotel, if you're on the side of the road. Um, so we're already seeing applications like that being put into effect. In fact, that program has been up and running, I believe, for the past couple of months. Yeah. And it's gotten huge. But we still have the issue of impatience. Like, I am never going to sit on the side of the road for two hours or more while my car is charging. If you, even if you had to? I would just, I would I would not want to rent an EV because of that. And maybe that's uh, me being a bad consumer, but that's just the truth. Uh, how are you hedging against that issue when it comes to consumer behavior in our final 30 seconds here? Absolutely. So the good news is, is that you wouldn't have to wait for those two hours. Um, in fact, in most areas, especially most metro cities and areas that we service, our SLA is actually closer to 60 to 75 minutes. And then we use DC fast chargers. So when we show up, we're not trickle charging your car. We're DC fast charging your car at a rate of up to 125, sometimes 150 kW. So we can actually get you off the side of the road once we show up in under 10 minutes and yeah. you're back to enjoying your day. So no two hour wait, no being stuck <laughs> on the side of the road. We're in, we're out, we're getting you yeah. back to enjoying your electric vehicle. Maddie, could you stand that? Uh, I still think an hour. I don't know. I it's don't hard. know. But it's it's a really uh, great look at the space. Josh, thank you so much. Josh Aviv uh, there with Spark Charge. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.